0: Man, it is rough to be Laura Kinney.
1: That's not so bad. I mean, she's got a clone friend and her own pet murder badger.
0: Well, she does now. But do you know how much murder it took her to get to that point? Was
1: it a lot of
0: murder? It was so much murder.
1: It can't all have been murder, though, right? I mean, she has to have done some normal teenage stuff. Mall trips, things like that.
0: She did babysit for the Richards kids once.
1: See, there you go. How'd it work out? I mean, she's never struck me as someone who'd be great with little kids, but you never know.
0: Oh, she got along fine with the kids.
1: Well, there you go then. Snag free.
0: I wouldn't say that. I mean, her ex-boyfriend showed up.
1: I'd still put that under the normal teen drama umbrella.
0: And they all got kidnapped by the Collector. What?! I'm Jay Edidin, and I'm Miles Stokes, and we are here to explain the X-Men
1: because it's about time someone did.
0: Welcome to episode 156 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, outs, and retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And if you missed it at the end of last episode, if you were one of those people who turns the episodes off after the questions, and if so, shame on you. Um, this is we are we are counting down toward a three month hiatus that will begin when we wrap up the Extinction Agenda next episode.
1: Yeah, so we will be back in uh, August, I believe, the beginning of that month.
0: Well, we'll also be back next week, but after that, we'll be back in August. Exactly. For now, though, we are on part two of three of the Extinction Agenda.
1: This was 1990's Big X crossover, and last episode, a lot of stuff happened. It's been a week, so let's give a very, very quick recap.
0: Genosha is a small South African apartheid metaphor built around mutant slavery and brainwashing off of the coast of Africa. It won the enmity of the X-Men and vice versa after luring them there several years ago, during which time they aided in the escape of Philip Moreau, the son of a powerful government official, and Jenny Ransom, his mutant girlfriend.
1: So the Genosians were really pissed at the X-Men after all of this, and they decided to capture a bunch of them. Specifically, the de-aged Storm, also Wolfsbane, Richter, Boom Boom, and
0: Warlock. When they got to Genosha, they discovered that the guy behind the mask, the one pulling the strings, was none other than the long-decapitated Cameron Hodge, or rather his severed head.
1: Yep, he also has a gigantic hate on for the X-Men. He was an X-Factor villain for a while. Long story, there are previous episodes about it. So the rest of the X-Men, the New Mutants, and X-Factor have picked up, gotten on a plane with the assorted paraphernalia of war, and have gone on a rescue mission.
0: Meanwhile, the prisoners in Genosha have done their best to effect an escape. A few of them are on the loose. Boom Boom, Richter, and Storm are still unaccounted for. Unfortunately, Wolfsbane has been recaptured and Warlock has been killed. Like, killed. For real. It was super sad. I'd say permanently, but this is a superhero comic. He'll be back someday.
1: So, things at the moment? I don't know. I'm not going to say they're looking up for the heroes, but they've beaten up some dudes. Cyclops has realized that his brother Havoc is with the magistrates for oh, some Oh yeah, reason. we forgot
0: to mention that part. One of the things that allowed for the capture of the X-Men was that Storm recognized one of the magistrates who'd come after them as a brainwashed havoc.
1: And that's where we pick up with Chapter 4. Things could be looking worse, they could be looking better. It's the middle part of a trilogy.
0: And it's time for Uncanny X-Men number 271. Flashpoint, but not that Flashpoint.
1: So we get more Dramatis Personae on the first page, which is to say pictures of all the characters standing next to each other with little captions below them. And as you know, I love Dramatis Personae, so I'm very glad that's here.
0: This, as it turns out, as we learn from that Dramatis Personae, is going to bring back our Mad Report trio as well. This is Wolverine, Jubilee, and Psylocke who have been running around Mad Report enjoying the nightlife, pretending to deliver pizzas, and generally wreaking havoc. But not the Havoc who's currently a... um, Genosian Magistrate. Right,
1: not that one. But this is surprising, because while these characters have been seen in the pages of Uncanny X-Men, they haven't really interacted with, like, anybody else, a Days of Future Present backup story aside. So it's kind of cool. All the heroes are going to get to team up, and it's going to be great.
0: We've also got the reappearance of one of our favorite real-person cameos, who we haven't seen since the Fall of the Mutants, and that is actual reporter Manoli Wetherill, who, in the Marvel Universe, is an anchor for NPR TV.
1: I mean, I'd love to see Neil Conan again, but Manoli Weatherall's pretty cool, too.
0: They're both great.
1: So after Manoli Weatherall fills us in on the current political crisis between the U.S. and Genosha, we see a really, really awesome page.
0: Man, so one of the fun things about Genosha is that it's very much built to look like generic suburban paradise number 63. It is all lawns, white picket fences, wide streets, children playing, which makes it a perfect setting for big, scary, super high-tech sci-fi chase scenes.
1: And even when we're in more of a city part of Genosha like we are here, just seeing that normalcy contrasted with people on flying robot scooter things, with bug-looking cybernetic helmets and giant guns, it's real creepy.
0: These are all kind of desaturated, sort of sepia-tone, dirty, dusty stuff, I should say. They look like military equipment. They don't look like they're pulled out of Tron.
1: And these soldiers are chasing down some of our fugitives, specifically Boom Boom and Richter. And I gotta say, this scene, especially coming from the last part, which was an X Factor, and the part before, which was a New Mutants, really does for me showcase how Jim Lee is just killing it here. And honestly, how much in some ways his art outclasses the work we see on display from Rob Liefeld and John Bogdanov?
0: Yeah, significantly. It's really jarring to go between sections of this crossover because one of them is just heads and tails more visually cohesive and better done than the others. You know, Lee at this point is such a master, especially one of the things I really love about him. This is something that you talked about with Brett Blevins, is that when he's got a group of characters in a scene, the ones in the background are always doing something. Oh, yeah, yeah. Jim Lee's got that going on, too. They've always got facial expressions. They're always—if they are just hanging out blankly in the background, they are 100% going to be Psylocke, and it's 100% going to be a spooky narrative beat.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I remember a scene in particular in one of the previous issues, I think the first chapter of Extinction Agenda— Where Banshee's having an argument with Cable and he's buttoning his collar at the same time. It's just a nice little touch and those touches are everywhere.
0: Yeah, no one just stands there in the ways that people generally don't in real life. And it's very cool. And it's something that I think Lee has lost a bit in his later work. I tend to think of his work as very posy and here it's really delightfully organic and dynamic. And so well suited to the heroic rescue that comes in next. There is a splash of fireworks and Jubilee swings in on a rope from a streetlight only to be caught by Wolverine before thwacking into a fire escape.
1: Yeah, the Madripoor trio, Wolverine, Jubilee, and Psylocke, is in Genosha. I guess they must have caught wind of what was going on here. I don't know that we actually find out how they found out, but whatever. They showed up, they decided to help, and now they kick the crap out of some magistrates with some truly awesome, truly Claremontian narration.
0: Jubilee's all enthusiasm and talent, making her moves on pure instinct, with no idea really what she's doing, and praying they're the right ones. Wolverine's the natural brawler, aided by bones that can't be broken and adamantium claws that can cut through anything, fighting as integral a part of his being as breathing. But where his skills are raw and rough-edged, as fierce as his nature, Psylocke is the personification of power and grace. Literal poetry in motion, where he is more a berserk battering ram, but no less effective.
1: Wait, literal poetry in motion? Nope, it is definitely figurative. Oh, At the same time, I feel like if you're a Claremont narration box, you can get away with misusing words a little bit.
0: Words mean things. That's true. And I say this as someone who is fairly diehard about descriptive linguistics, but, you know, come on, man. (laughs) With
1: <laughs> still, though, there is no narration like Claremont narration. Like I could, I, I
0: don't could, know. Simonson narration is a bit like Claremont narration.
1: Still, though, with Claremont, just the degree of purpleness and expressiveness to that prose—it's wonderful. Yeah,
0: this is royal. It is eggplant. It is amethyst. <laughs> And so
1: the fight is joined by a woman named Tam. Now, we're going to see her on the fringes of this crossover a fair bit. She's one of the leaders of the magistrates, and she's also very close to Havoc, you know, our X-Men character who has been brainwashed into becoming a magistrate.
0: Surprisingly, for someone who helps convince him to make extra bad choices, she is not a redhead. Go Havoc.
1: Right. Maybe it's a coloring error, or maybe she dyes her hair.
0: Or maybe Havoc is branching out into being brainwashed by a wider range of women.
1: You know, I respect that open-mindedness. Good job, Alex Summers.
0: Actually, I assume in this case that he was brainwashed mostly by a combination of the Siege Perilous and, you know, Genosian authorities, but...
1: Maybe some of them are red-headed.
0: His bad choices are just so consistent, it's hard not to harp on them.
1: But what Tam does here is that she jumps into the fray with this awesome electrified tanfa and beats the living hell out of Wolverine. After all, the last time he was in Genosha, he killed some of her friends. These were her comrades... That's one of the things I enjoy about Genosha is that while you do have some incredibly evil people and some people who, even if they think they're nice, their actions are clearly, clearly not okay, you have some people who are just doing their jobs, not thinking about it too much and who, you know, do have human emotions and loyalty to their friends, even if they benefit from a state that does terrible, terrible things to an underclass.
0: Yeah, we talked about this at length in the episode Genosha is for lovers, but the Genosha arcs in this era are excellent case studies in the capacity of humans to rationalize evil as serving a greater good and to minimize their own contributions to that evil. So Tam is significant for that reason, but this fight is significant for another reason because it involves, I believe, at least Psylocke's first on-page use of a phrase that we will come to know, love, know, love, quote at length, and make fun of, namely, the focused totality of my psychic powers.
1: That's right, one of the most famous Claremontisms has been born. The Psychic Knife now has its description. After the battle, which the heroes do win, thanks to the aforementioned Psychic Knife...
0: And its focused totality.
1: Wolverine's not looking so hot. I mean, he's lost most of his healing factor from the ordeals he's been through for the last couple years of comic book time. And he's not letting it slow him down at all. Jubilee, his bud, is concerned.
0: What is with this total macho junk? Are you desperate to die, man, or what?
1: Sometimes, jubilation, things happen whether you want them to or not. Then it becomes a matter of how you choose to go.
0: Do you think Wolverine just watches like old cowboy and samurai movies and tries to find opportunities to work in scenarios and lines from them?
1: I think he probably does, but he's also recognizing that he's probably going to die. Every fight he's been in, successively for a long time, he's gotten more and more beaten down, the healing factor is barely doing its job these days, it's not, you know, Invincible Logan from the early days anymore.
0: This is also the first meeting of two characters who get compared a lot.
1: Those being Jubilee and Boom Boom.
0: And Jubilee, for her part, is unimpressed. Who are these lame-o-dweeboids, anyway? I
1: love Jubilee's ultra-1990 insults.
0: Bite my wind, Grandpa!
1: Okay, that's a different 90s insult, but God, you're right, if Jubilee and Little Pete from The Adventures of Pete and Pete could have, like, an insult off, like, I would watch the hell out of that.
0: I feel like they would definitely go blow some shit up afterwards.
1: I don't know, Boom Boom's the more destructive of the two between her and Jubilee, but in this case, Boom Boom is not impressed either.
0: Watch the mouth, firecracker, before somebody pulls your fuse.
1: I mean, we all knew this was coming. Like, we talked at length about how Jubilee and Boom Boom are very different characters, but they do have some things in common, and seeing them meet and immediately clash is wonderful.
0: Psylocke links all of their minds so everyone can get up to speed, and they decide that the most expedient thing to do is going to be to split up. Psylocke and Wolverine will go off to rescue the others, and meanwhile, Jubilee, who still has her powers, will help get the depowered Boom Boom and Richter to safety.
1: You know, reluctantly, because Jubilee just wants to stay with Wolverine. I mean, they're partners, right? They do stuff together. She just doesn't want to hang out with these dumb kids in their dumb little jumpsuit things.
0: And Boom Boom and Richter definitely don't need help from someone like her.
1: It's wonderful. I mean, there's all this high-stakes drama, there are characters actually dying, there's this giant apartheid metaphor, and there are teenagers bickering because teenagers should always bicker in an X-book.
0: Speaking of high-stakes drama, meanwhile on television, Manoli Wetherell is moderating a debate between the gene engineer and evil, sexy Moira McTaggart.
1: Right, Moira McTaggart, of course, being one of the foremost experts on mutation in not-genosha in the world.
0: Also, she has shown up to this science debate in a skin-tight rubber suit with giant teased hair. But she does make some really good points about not executing children just because they hang out with your enemies. So I guess, you know, she's evil, sexy Moira, but she's at least fairly sensible still on some levels. I feel like the Shadow King would be fine with executing children for really any reason. So there's got to be at least some OG Moira still coming through.
1: The impression I get is that in this era of X Men, while the Shadow King is exerting heavy influence over a lot of the people on Muir Island, certainly Moira McTaggart included, their personalities haven't been completely overwritten so much as they've been tweaked. They're still themselves. They're just eviler, sexier versions of themselves.
0: The Gene engineer rebuts by which I mean obfuscates at some length.
1: Genosha has been, since its founding, a beacon of racial and political tolerance in a part of the world that badly needs both. We seek only to live in harmony with ourselves and our neighbors. These mutants seek to sweep all that away. If we give in, then we cede to them the total mastery of our lives and fates and thereby betray all we have worked for as a nation and as a people.
0: Next thing you know, they'll be marrying office supplies.
1: See, that's the thing. Like The G-Engineer actually kind of does remind me of those people who have the whole if other people get rights, I'm going to lose mine argument.
0: Well, the G-Engineer is sort of correct about the way of life, but I feel fairly strongly that if your entire society is built on slavery, your society deserves to crumble.
1: But Genosha you know, here is a great example of a place where the people that benefit from the sacrifices of the underclass, from the literal enslavement of the underclass, they're kind of blind to what that really means. They don't understand, you know, the cost of their privilege because they never have to. And even the engineer who understands the details pretty well.
0: Well, they're so good at rationalizing it. And they've gotten to the point where they effectively believe their own propaganda, which, I mean, I feel like at its heart is the first and primary function of propaganda. It's the lines that the people committing atrocities can say to justify those atrocities and make them more sympathetic to an audience, but also very much to themselves. Propaganda stems first and foremost not from what we want others to hear, but from the lies that we have to tell ourselves to make horrible acts and stances palatable.
1: Absolutely. And so then when you have people like the X-Men or the escaped mutates just standing up for their own rights or trying to right the injustice they see... They become obvious villains because they're trying to destroy the status quo that clearly benefits, well, certainly everybody we know, right? Say the Genosians.
0: I am going to break from a usual policy on this podcast, and I'm going to go on a brief political rant here. Well, sort of political rant. This, more than anything, is, I think, why not only what we talk about, but the way we talk about it matters. The way we frame conversations, the way our elected officials, our spokespeople, our news reporters frame conversations is so important. How we talk about what we talk about, how we present it and how we question and respond to it is critical. And it is, I think, in an era where media is largely partisan and where there is a huge amount of not only misinformation, but really bad faith analysis and also just really poorly conceived analysis floating around and a huge, huge amount of deliberate misinformation You know, being an active and literate consumer of news and respondent to and questioner of that stuff is so, so, so critical. Like, I mean, the Gene Geneer's speech here is creepy not because it's so far-fetched, but because it's so immediately recognizable.
1: Right, because he's good at sounding reasonable just by keeping a calm tone of voice and by empathizing with his target audience. The actual content of what he's saying, or especially the subtext of what he's saying— is less clear.
0: Well, and by using the right catchwords and the right catchphrases, there's a great, great essay that I'll link to in the companion to this called Politics in the English Language by George Orwell. And I'm not going to go on a tangent about that because (laughs) I could really pretty much put together another weekly podcast for the rest of my natural life and not get through even his nonfiction. Orwell's amazing, read everything. But that actually talks about that in a fair amount of detail and, and talks about sort of the reassuring and meaningless aphorisms that we return to To effectively obfuscate horror and to sort of dull the actual message when the message is something as atrocious as this.
1: Yeah, and I think with the Genosha plotline in X-Men, I mean, there's the clear parallel to apartheid, which obviously was very much in the public consciousness and the news at the time, but it's important not just to see the Genosha stories as a relic of the past because they are relevant as hell to the present as well. After the debate, the gene engineer hangs out for some good old-fashioned brooding about how his son betrayed him and left Genosha while stealing a mutate, stealing this intellectual property, and their storm with a knife having snuck in.
0: Fuck yeah, it's stabbing time.
1: That's kind of her plan because Storm really, really values life, but she also understands that based on her own morality, sometimes the best way to preserve life is is to
0: stab someone.
1: Is to stab someone. The gene engineer starts talking very, very quickly saying, "Hey, I'm just trying to preserve my country's way of life. The one who's screwing up the rest of the world is this guy Cameron Hodge who showed up. I don't want to do anything beyond Genosha's own borders. Don't kill me. He is the enemy.
0: Speak of the devil. Hodge and the president show up immediately. Hodge uh, spikes Storm to the wall and he's about to kill her. But the gene engineer surprisingly convinces him that it would make way more sense to make her into a mutate to add her to Genosha's pool of collective genetic resources.
1: So there's another one of our heroes captured and apparently about to be turned into a mutate. In the meantime, Wolverine and Psylocke, they're busy infiltrating Genosha. They've dressed themselves as magistrates. They're on those flying bike thingums that are apparently officially called flitters. And things are going just fine. They're just talking about identity. You know, Psylocke's been through a rather major change recently, having her whole body swapped. I mean, depending on which version of continuity we're looking at.
0: Well, and most of her mind shifted around significantly as well.
1: She talks to Wolverine about how she barely knows herself these days and asks about his own experiences with change.
0: Does it bother you how your adamantium claws and unbreakable skeleton came to be?
1: Nope. One day I didn't have him. Next I did. I made adjustments. Life went on. That was the end of it.
0: And he's talking again like he knows he's about to die. Talking about how he wants to settle up while he still can. It's worth noting that the plan at this point, Chris Claremont's plan was actually to kill Wolverine. He was going to die, I believe, specifically in X-Men Volume 2, number 3?
1: I believe so, yeah. There was talk of Lady Deathstrike being the one to finally finish him off, but Claremont was never scared to have major status quo shifts in X-Men, and he kind of felt like this would be a more interesting way for the story to go, and I gotta say, I agree, especially knowing what was going to come next. Apparently, Wolverine's body was going to be found by the hands, that ninja clan that loves resurrecting people, and they were going to turn him into an evil assassin-type dude.
0: You mentioned it sounds like a good idea, and I am on the record as saying if you can kill Logan, you should kill Logan. (laughs) Right. I am pretty much in the Lady Deathstrike school of just murder all the Logan.
1: But apparently Marvel wouldn't let him do this, partially because Wolverine was in a bunch of other places. They mentioned, well, he's got his own series. What's going to happen there?
0: And Claremont was like, well... It'll stay the Wolverine series, but he'll come back and he'll be a villain and it'll follow him and it'll be, it'll be great. No one else is doing this right now.
1: And that would have been pretty cool. But Marvel was like, yeah, but we also have Marvel Comics Presents.
0: Which is literally like 90% Wolverine stories right now.
1: So, so no, Chris, you're not allowed to do it. It's a shame. I think that would have been cool. But, you know, maybe the Mutant Wars would have been cool as well. We got what we got. Miles,
0: Miles, the Mutant Wars wouldn't have been cool. That might
1: have been cool. You don't know
0: that. There's nothing cool about Mutant Wars, Miles. Oh,
1: man. Deep cut there. But Wolverine and Psylocke's conversation gets interrupted because suddenly Psylocke is hit with some mega psychic feedback from the agony of Storm being bonded to a skin suit, having her mind mostly wiped and being turned into a mutate, an irreversible process.
0: And they actually use that to their advantage they are still in Magistrate's clothing at this point, and they tell the rescue team that's come that Psylocke needs help from the G-Engineer, that she's a psychic sensitive. Unfortunately, the rescue team that's come for them is led by Havoc, who recognizes Tam's clothing and says, huh, uh, yeah, no, you're not who you say you are. I'm just gonna spray plasma at you. Okay, when you phrase it like that, he sounds like a misbehaving tomcat. I stand by my phrasing.
1: Alex Summers, misbehaving plasma tomcat, does not have a terminal degree.
0: It's really easy to imagine him, like, revenge blasting people or just, like, revenge blasting someone's bed with their stuff. (laughs) Right. It's like, you come home and your shoes are just, like, shredded in a charred hole in your floor. And it's like, damn it, Alex, did you forget to let him out again?
1: But let's give this some context here because Psylocke and Wolverine, yes, they had a clever way to infiltrate. Aw, I thought you were
0: talking about giving Havoc peeing on things context.
1: Um, No, I think we've given that plenty of context. I mean, it's just that he's
0: territorial and insecure. Well, there you have it. But Psylocke got hit with that
1: psychic feedback in the first place because Storm, one of the oldest X-Men, one of Wolverine's best friends in the world, just got turned into a mindless slave seemingly permanently? This story is so good at giving everything stakes. And I gotta say, like, as much as continuity can be Teflon, as much as changes don't tend to stick, a lot of the changes in the Extinction Agenda do. And even without knowing that, even if you were reading this at the time, the writing and the art just really sell the severity of all the stuff that's going on.
0: The characters, however, are too stubborn to submit to a change in status quo. They do their best to maintain the Teflon surface, and Psylocke, to that end, psychic knives Havoc in the head, hoping that it will reset his personality to pre-magistrate Havoc. She doesn't have time to find out if it works because Cameron Hodge skitters up, strings Wolverine up like a puppet, and skitters around yelling.
1: How does Cameron Hodge always show up every time anybody is anywhere? Is there like a system of pneumatic tubes in Genosha that he can travel through?
0: No, he's got a room full of monitors and he skitters very fast.
1: But even so, there have to be at least clue-style passages in these buildings.
0: Nope, he just skitters really fucking fast. He's got a little hodge lane down all of the major hallways.
1: But anyway, there's a big Jim Lee-drawn fight, and I gotta say, it's awesome. There's, you know, blood and things getting smashed and costumes getting torn up. I don't know, are they torn up enough for a drink at this point, Jay?
0: I think once you're halfway through the extinction agenda, you can just sort of set your own pace.
1: That's probably true. But Hodge wins, even though Psylocke finds a giant gun to be badass with.
0: But does Hodge win? I don't know if Hodge really wins, because in the background, the Gene engineer is still working on Storm. We don't hear what he's doing. We don't really see what he's thinking, at least yet. And unless you look closely, you might not notice that the monitor behind him says, Standard Matrix Cancelled. Custom Configuration Loaded. Running, as the Gene engineer thinks.
1: Will this make me a hero, or my country's greatest traitor?
0: Hodge manages to take out Wolverine and Psylocke as the process finishes and Storm emerges as mutate number 20.
1: Wait a minute, number 20? There are like hundreds of mutates.
0: Maybe they recycle numbers. Maybe they choose numbers at random. That could
1: be. I mean, I would just have them go in order. Genosha is a very organized society. You'd think you'd start with 001 and go from there.
0: Maybe they do, but I assume that there's a fairly high attrition rate considering what they have the mutates do and the, you know, circumstances under which they live and the relative value placed on their lives— so, you know, you don't know that she's the first number 20. We do know that their numbering system goes pretty high because eventually, in a much later story, and I know they just do this for the, the reference, but we're eventually going to see mutate number 24601, so... Oh, right.
1: You mentioned that earlier and you had to tell me what that number was. Yeah,
0: because you thought it was a reference to the prisoner.
1: I, I, I still haven't seen the prisoner. It's I, number six, Miles. I the know prisoner I is number it. six.
0: 24601 is Jean Valjean from Les Mis.
1: Did you know that there's a Les Miserables fighting game in Japan?
0: I did not, but I am entirely unsurprised by that.
1: Would you be surprised to know that one of the characters, in addition to the main cast of the play and the book, all, you know, fighting gamed up, was a robot version of Jean Valjean?
0: I would be surprised to learn that that was not the case.
1: Okay, good point. But this is all true. I'm actually not making this up. Google Les Miserables fighting game. Hey,
0: Miles, you just volunteered to do the as-mentioned for this episode.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I'll send you a link for that part. Okay, so anyway, that's the end of this chapter of the Extinction Agenda. I'm noticing a trend here, which is that every chapter ends with something going wrong. Like, the heroes are losing their free teammates more and more. So with that, we move on to New Mutants, which is the middle chapter of the entire Extinction Agenda. This one is drawn by Liefeld, but we have multiple inkers, and like you said last episode, Jay, that's usually a sign the art came in pretty late and everything else was rushed.
0: Now, we ended last issue with Storm being turned into a mutate, but we've still got a few mutants on the loose.
1: That's right, Richter and Boom Boom and Jubilee are on their own, they're still free, and they're being chased through the streets by magistrates and they're tracking mutate.
0: They take a break from fleeing to gripe briefly about Jubilee being in charge.
1: And also the fact that she's so self-important about being in charge and won't shut up about her best friend Wolverine, which I think is hilarious.
0: Do you think they have best friends necklaces?
1: Wolverine and Jubilee? I think Jubilee has one half and she keeps trying to give one to Wolverine and he won't wear it. So like she puts it on him while he's asleep and then he takes it off and hides it somewhere. And then she finds it and tries to put it on again.
0: She thinks it's a fun game that they play. He doesn't remember that it exists.
1: <laughs> I mean, he has a lot of head trauma these days.
0: All the X-Men have a lot of head trauma.
1: Wolverine especially, though. That dude gets beaten up so badly so frequently.
0: Healing factor.
1: I mean, what's left of it? Poor guy.
0: Yeah, that's true. And they manage to take out all of the trackers who've come after them, and they rescue the terrified mutate who they take with them as they draw pursuit away from X-Factor's upcoming landing point.
1: It's interesting to me here that the mutate, without his magistrates being there, without his bosses being there, he just kind of wants someone to tell him what to do and to be around. Like, the Mutate's wills have been taken away so much that they can't really do anything on their own. Oh, They kind of remind me of Hounds, but, you know, less malicious and more helpless and mind-wiped.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point, and I'm surprised that that's not a parallel that they're playing up harder at this point.
1: Well, especially since Days of Future Present happens, like, right before the Extinction Agenda, and Hounds were such a big deal there.
0: Right, and it's such a similar principle.
1: As the fugitives flee, the one who didn't get away, Rain Sinclair is about to be turned into a mutate. And as the gene-engineer talks about the bonding process, how that's all going to work as he describes it to Hodge, Rain starts to consider what this is all going to mean.
0: Already they shaved my head and removed the genetic material which they'll use to create what they call biological syntheses— but which are really not but poor little bald and willless babies who will never know a mother's love, nor feel the wind in their hair, nor the kiss of sunlight on their arms. As I will never know such things again. Never know happiness, nor a husband's devotion, nor children of my own. Never to live a normal life. To have nothing, to be nothing, to hardly have a life at all.
1: And she thinks, well, at least she kissed Richter once and she wishes there could have been more because now there's never going to be anything again.
0: Yeah, like if we'd known we were all going to die, we'd at least have tried for second base. Right? It actually
1: reminds me a little of that scene way back in the Brood Saga in X-Men where Kitty Pride essentially tries to convince Colossus that they should mess around because they're going to die the next day. And he says no because it wouldn't be right. Just that whole, if I had known this was going to be the end of it, what would I have done differently?
0: You know, space sex. But as it turns
1: out, while Rain will, you know, not be a mindless mutate forever, the changes that are going to be instituted here on her, they're going to be in effect for many, many years. Wolfsbane, the character we know and love, her powers working the way they did, her mind working the way it did, we're not going to see that again for ages, more than a decade's worth of comics. Yeah,
0: these are going to impact her for a very, very long time. And not exactly like Storm, but Rain isn't exactly going to be a standard mutate either because Hodge makes it clear that he wants her to retain at least some memory of what's been done to her just so that he can be maximally a dick about it.
1: And the engineer points out that that's dangerous, but Hodge, of course, does not care.
0: Because Hodge is a jerk.
1: So the bonding process begins. Back on the streets, Jubilee and her group find an empty apartment that they can scrounge some food from. Also, Jubilee wants to turn on MTV to see what's going on there, which places this so squarely in 1990.
0: Yes, Jubilee would like to watch some of the pop-up video. Wait, no, that's VH1. No, but 1990
1: was when MTV actually had real music. I think they did up until the mid-90s maybe.
0: Before it was The Real World, Wisconsin, New York, Space, Canada, London, everywhere else, just 24 hours a day. Man, if they had
1: The Real World in Space, do you think that the Real World characters would meet the Leprechaun from The Leprechaun in Space? I hope so. That would be much more interesting.
0: I never actually saw that show. It seems kind of I mean, I, it it was what sort of started reality television, right?
1: I was one of the first big ones, certainly.
0: And it was what started the thing where we call things real or reality that just clearly aren't? Uh, Yeah, the
1: slow disintegration of the concept of truth.
0: Because I'm pretty sure that the real world does not involve being live on MTV.
1: But what if it did? I don't like that plan.
0: America is terrible.
1: Well, anyway, Genosha is also terrible. As the kids are scrounging for food, the magistrate who lives there comes in, because he's just coming home, and there are all these teenagers in bright colors, like, stealing his pizza rolls. Well,
0: and of course, the apartment that they happened to sneak into happened to belong to a magistrate.
1: Of course. Not just,
0: like, a random computer scientist or something.
1: And because you can never have just one or two things happening at once, at this point, the TV which has been turned on turns to a special news report, where a newly bald and blank-faced Rain Sinclair, in her bonded skin suit, talks about how she's voluntarily serving the state of Genosha to atone for her crimes and urges her friends to do the same.
0: Richter is furious as the magistrate gloats about Jean-Joke's fates, and Richter's first impulse is to rush off to rescue Rain. Uh, Boom Boom is the one who tries to restrain him.
1: This never would have happened if I'd made her come with me. It's my fault she's like that. I have to save her. Besides, I love her.
0: And he gets an unexpected ally in Jubilee. Look, if you want to go that bad, I'll go with you. You will? Sure. What do you think, you new mutants got the patent on stupidity?
1: I love this. The whole, like, character who you've been opposed to says, you know what, I'm going to help you with your grand plan.
0: I may not make an honest buck, but I'm 100% American. I don't work for no two-bit Nazi.
1: Not entirely relevant, but I will certainly applaud any opportunity to insert that quote into a conversation.
0: It's totally relevant. It's someone with whom the person fighting has had a previously antagonistic relationship, but then they team up when the going gets tough. Okay, you know what? I'll allow it. You know, Jubilee and New Mutants, Gangsters and G-Men, same basic thing.
1: As the case may be. And so they're off to do a rescue, but they don't go alone, because you remember that one mutate that they rescued, the one that was with the magistrates and sort of came with them? I do. He is really touched by these characters helping each other out, by this display of passion and love and dedication from Richter. Says it reminds him of his mother back when she tried to save him from the mutate bonding process and failed. He says he's going to go with them. He's going to use his mutant ability to help them find who they're looking for.
0: They're not the only ones on a rescue mission. X-Factor and the remaining X-Men and new mutants are trying to figure out where they're headed next.
1: So they're going to divide themselves into two teams. There's going to be the sneaky, subtle team, you know, characters like Marvel Girl, Forge, Sunspot, Gambit,
0: Cable? Okay, Gambit is extremely sneaky when he's not using his powers.
1: Those metal boots are very quiet.
0: Somehow he manages to be a master thief in them, so obviously he can make it work. I do question Cable as sneaky because, among other things, I assume that he just yells and clangs all the time.
1: I just keep coming back to Steiner from Final Fantasy IX, where every single time the dude takes a step, there's a clanking sound, which I really appreciated in that game.
0: Cable is the dude who turns around and yells at everyone to be quiet.
1: (laughs) Yes, he does. No inside voice at all.
0: No, no inside voice.
1: But this is the era where Cable is basically just good at everything.
0: Except love.
1: (laughs) Right? I do love the idea, though, of like a thoughtful, strategic, sneaky guy being, you know, the size of a couple of refrigerators stacked next to each other.
0: Maybe what he's got in all the the pouches is actually just like cotton wool to wrap around himself. Oh, that he's very soft and- Well, it will muffle his steps. Well, anyway... It's not to make him more huggable. He doesn't like hugs. Or maybe he does. Maybe it's to better contrast him with Strife. That
1: could be. He's the Or to make him immune to Strife. Oh, right, because the opposite of blades is cotton. Paid for by the cotton industry of America.
0: And the knife lobby, weirdly.
1: (laughs) So the other team will be the Strike Force. That's going to be Cyclops, Archangel, Iceman, Beast, and Cannonball. They're basically going to be a great big distraction, while the subtle team plants a bunch of bombs and tries to save the prisoners. I feel like Iceman and Beast are both pretty quiet. They can be, but they can also be quite boisterous when they want to. Yeah,
0: I was going to say, like, Beast's powers are pretty fundamentally quiet. Maybe it's just that they're worried that he'll declaim.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So the quiet team does their thing. Marvel Girl telekinetically carries them over to where they're going after Cyclops briefly and unsuccessfully says she should stay where they are to be safe.
0: Well, he's concerned because whoever is doing this very clearly at this point has a mad-on specifically for X-Factor.
1: And that's quite true. They don't know it's Cameron Hodge yet, but Cyclops' intuition is correct. And the quiet team is doing a pretty good job of setting various explosives when suddenly there's a magistrate. They take him out pretty quickly, with a silently charged playing card from Gambit. I guess that kind of works.
0: But the body lands with a loud splat right next to Jubilee's group, right as Boom Boom is telling Jubilee to shut the hell up about all of the things that Wolvie says.
1: And that sound, presumably the splat, or possibly the Wilhelm scream that I'm assuming accompanies it... I'd hope so. ...calls in a bunch of magistrates, and... Guess who? Guess who?
0: Is it Mystique? Nope. Is it Adorable Muppets Ardian Leech? Nope. Is it a giant severed head running around on spider legs with a bunch of cables stuck into its neck, shrieking with a cardboard cutout of its previous body hanging around its neck?
1: It is exactly that, although I think he left the cardboard cutout at home, unfortunately. I
0: wish he hadn't. I wish it had just gotten more sort of beaten up and singed and battle-damaged as he ran around. That would have been so good. It
1: totally would have.
0: Would have been such a good touch. But once
1: again, Cameron Hodge is able to show up immediately as soon as something happens. He
0: skitters very quickly, man. What can I tell you?
1: And he kicks the crap out of the sneaky team. He captures, like, all of them. This plan is really not going well.
0: I guess they should have sent the explosion team rather than the sneaking team.
1: Maybe, but after Wipeout manages to depower all of these heroes, and one of the telepath mutates manages to figure out where all the charges are, things are not looking good for our heroes. Jubilee, of course, wanted to join the fight, but she was held back by Richter and also Boom Boom.
0: Look, we were wrong about Storm. Storm knew what we were up against when the Magistrates kidnapped us, we didn't, and Storm was right to try and protect the others. Like, we're trying to protect you.
1: Boom Boom is actually kind of mature, especially when contrasted with Jubilee. I really enjoy what this storyline is doing for her character. Like she's grown a lot since she was introduced.
0: I continue to just really like her. So I'm good with that. Now, Hodge overhears their conversation, but the mutate who's been traveling with the group who had fled at the first loud noise comes back and he says that it was him and he was just talking to himself about how proud he was to have alerted Hodge to Cable's team and he was just feeling like such a happy mutate. So he was just talking about stuff in the background. And there's definitely no one else who's snuck in.
1: And this is kind of a big deal because this is a mutate openly lying and defying his Genosian masters. So that gives us a little bit of hope that maybe the process isn't, you know, entirely mind consuming.
0: Yay. I
1: think that's worthy of a yay. Absolutely. Yeah.
0: I mean, and it's good that we've got that hope because the next person we see is Rain. Fully loyal, fully transformed, fully mutate.
1: And I gotta say, as down as we are on Life Alts are typically, the face he shows on Cable here, just this utterly defeated, sad expression, it works for me. I mean, this was one of Cable's charges, and it's not even that she died in battle. I feel like Cable would have been okay with that, but she had everything that made her her. She had that fighting spirit completely crushed.
0: Now, speaking of faces and their rendering... This brings us to X-Factor 61 and specifically to the cover of X-Factor 61.
1: What the hell is happening? I mean, I know what's happening because it's in the story, but why would you draw it like that?
0: So Cable looks like a kid being dragged away from the candy bin. But my favorite part is the foreground where Jean is cradling an apparently dying Wolverine and just looking bored out of her mind.
1: Oh, this guy again.
0: Right. Like, like, really, really?
1: But we got to come back to the Cable uh, part. Because he's being pulled away from Cameron Hodge, who he's trying to, like, tear apart, by Cameron Hodge's tentacles coming from the other side of the cover. And it's just, like, squishing his face, and so his face is all contorted. It's like when people put scotch tape on their faces to make their noses look funny, except robot tentacles and Cable. What? You don't do that? You don't? I mean, I don't do it anymore, because it's hard to do with a beard, but, like, you can use scotch tape and make your face all funny and pulled back in weird places. I bet Cable does it. I bet he's really good at it. I bet he trains his students to do it in the danger room.
0: Do they also cover the palms of their hands with Elmer's glue and then peel it off trying to get one, like, solid handprint?
1: Yes, and they're very efficient at it at this point because Cable's an amazing mentor but it certainly is a cover and the thing is like we've talked about how Bogdanov's art just is super weird in this era and we used to love it and then it's just strange here and this issue I think is the most egregious example of that and that's unfortunate yeah. cuz
0: when it's good it's so good and it's it, the facial expressions are so much of that and again I'm going to harp back on the inking again on this one I think some of the mess with the bodies is all Bogdanov but the faces and the way they're inked just like it's some very milgram milgrimming
1: it is What I do love art-wise is the first page, which in theory is a report, you know, handed from one Genosian official to another of the status of all the characters. In reality, it's just them in various action poses with descriptions of who they are and what they do. And there's one of Richter holding apart a feuding Boom Boom and Jubilee who are sort of rolling up their sleeves and putting their dukes up and like scrunching up their faces against each other. And It's hilarious. I
0: like that this is the illustration for the official Genosian report.
1: You know, it's like when you're doing a PowerPoint presentation, you can't just have it be a bunch of bullet points. You got to have things that grab people's attention a little more.
0: But how do you find that particular image? Did they have a house illustrator?
1: Well, reports aside, Cameron Hodge is currently beating the hell out of his various prisoners, ranting about how he was never X-Factor's friend and coming back again to how he's their oldest and most obsessive enemy. I mean, he's certainly their most obsessive enemy, but... No,
0: he's arguably been their enemy for longer than anyone else, if you consider that his enmity with Warren goes back to, like junior high.
1: Oh, right. When he secretly hated Warren Worthington, but Warren thought he was still his bud.
0: Yeah, when he hated Warren and or had a crush on him. But
1: the degree to which it's so important to Cameron Hodge that he is like the nemesis of X-Factor, not just their foe. Like, that's intense.
0: That's a very Lego Batman Joker situation going on here. Oh, man, I was thinking the Monarch and the Venture Brothers. Also the Monarch, yes. I feel kind of bad for Cameron Hodge. Like, Cameron, buddy, you need to define yourself by you. Right, I mean, look at all the things that make you
1: unique. You're a severed head on a giant robot body. You're immortal because you made a deal with the devil.
0: And your files are impeccably organized. You're actually
1: ahead on your taxes. Right? I mean, there's so much that's you, Cam buddy. Like, just let go of those X-Factor folks.
0: You could be a super racist organization consultant.
1: So many options, Hodge. So many options. But alas, he doesn't learn and that lack of self-confidence and Obsession with the past just leads him to kill and irrevocably transform a lot of teenagers.
0: Later, he'll try to get the phalanx to take over the Earth.
1: God, he just doesn't go away, does he?
0: No, he is functionally unkillable, and that's one of the things I love about him, because he's not who you would pick out as the unkillable enemy at first. Like, he's just a dude.
1: He's a bureaucrat. He's a bitter, petty bureaucrat.
0: Yeah, and I love that he is the unstoppable force of X-Men. Like, he just keeps coming back. And he's weirder every time.
1: Oh, yeah. Like, visually, he just gets more and more messed up. Although I think this is probably my favorite incarnation of Cameron Hodge.
0: Hands down. And again, for all of the faults of the art in this issue, man, the Hodge in the X Factor issues is so good.
1: Yeah, he definitely looks by far the most terrifying when John Bogdanov draws him, like, in a good, deliberate way. So as Hodge is ranting and beating up various prisoners, Havok, who, of course, is a Genotian magistrate at this point, is watching quietly he knows that Hodge has cast doubt on the gene engineer because of the gene engineers son having betrayed the country. He's trying to cast doubt on Havoc because Havoc is a mutant, even though he's one that serves Genosha voluntarily. And Havoc later complains to one of his co-workers about this.
0: I've had to work three times as hard, be three times as good at my job, and three times as loyal to Genosha as any magistrate on my level. Yeah, maybe remember that before you give that M-word speech later, asshole.
1: And so, as the post-beaten-up prisoners are being taken to their cells, once Hodge is done smacking them around, they see Wolfsbane walk by. Again, she's fully a mutate by this point. She's entirely lost her will. And they're furious. Cable charges Cameron Hodge, even though Cable's bionic arm is no longer working after Wipeout took people's powers away. Now, I
0: think this is the first solid evidence we have that Cable's a mutant, isn't it?
1: Uh, yeah, that there's something power-related about that robot arm, absolutely. Before, he just seemed like an awesome cyborg mercenary who's good at everything.
0: Well, he's that, too. They're not mutually exclusive categories.
1: Cable is beaten down quickly, of course, because Hodge is basically invincible. And he's just... broken by this. I had hoped to make a contribution, to enrich the lives of my students. But how can I call myself their mentor if they can be brutalized like that under my protection?
0: To be fair, they don't really cover this particular situation in most teaching programs. That's true.
1: You know, I kind of feel like he could have some good conversations with Magneto. They both had horrible, horrible things happen to their students while they were under their watch. They both have white hair. They're both drawn ridiculously muscly sometimes.
0: Now, the guys are thrown into a cell together, but Gene is dragged off to a different one, already occupied by a dying Logan.
1: Yeah, Wolverine is just in a pool of so much of his own blood, like, that cannot be healthy, even if you do have a tiny bit of a healing factor still left.
0: Yeah, that's definitely supposed to be on the inside.
1: And that tiny bit of a healing factor? Even that's gone because Wipeout took everyone's powers away. Wah So, he's in real bad shape. But he's happy to see Gene, it's been a long time. Funny, back before you lost your telepathic power, he used to know what I was thinking, even before I thought it. And I never had a clue what was going on inside your head. And now? Now we're even. It's good to see you, Jeannie. Even here.
0: It's good to see you.
1: And then, halfway through that sentence, they passionately kiss. And this is something Bogdanov draws very well. Just the way their limbs are entwined. The way they're just pressed against one another. And there's a series of three panels, each one getting a little bit closer to their kissing faces as we see Jean first just looking passionate, and then her brow furrowing, looking concerned, and then a tear rolling down her cheek because she realizes Logan's dying, and Logan knows he's dying.
0: Is this Jean and Logan's first, like, consensual on-panel kiss?
1: It is, because the only time we've seen them kiss before, I believe, was in Inferno, when Wolverine was sort of evil-possessed, and the previous time they'd kissed, that was referenced in the Harry's Hideaway conversation by Aurora and Jean earlier in this story... That was never actually shown. So, this is it. And for a first consensual kiss, goddamn.
0: Well, it's pretty tragic and pretty sort of pity makeoutsy, since one of them is actively dying at the moment, and the other one is clearly aware of it. And so, I've
1: never been a fan of the whole Cyclops Wolverine Jean Grey love triangle. I mean, for me, it just it doesn't work. It doesn't make sense. But the idea that there's this, you know, this pent-up chemistry, like, okay, that I buy. Yeah, totally. And the idea that that would come out so intensely when it's clear that one of them is dying, this I'm entirely okay with. This feels like a character moment that absolutely fits. And knowing just what the stakes are of the story, like, if you were reading this story at the time it was coming out, it could very well seem like maybe Wolverine would die. Maybe Marvel would actually let Claremont do that.
0: And Hodge, as it turns out, is on the same page as you're expecting the reader to be. This is all part of his plan. He's hoping that Gene's going to betray Cyclops out of love or pity, and that's going to destroy Cyclops better than anything Hodge could do directly.
1: See, that's the thing. I mean, Hodge hates mutants in general, sure, but just the specific level of sadism he has for all of X-Factor is so intense.
0: Yeah, he's a jerk.
1: That is an accurate statement, yes. So
0: let's talk about what X-Factor's up to right now, because it's great.
1: So Iceman, Archangel, Beast, Cyclops, Cannonball, and Banshee— that group is busy disguising Cyclops and Iceman as mutates. They found some mutate skin suits and also some other stuff.
0: Yeah, uh, Iceman is being fitted with, I believe, Shield's most advanced bald cap. Yes!
1: I really want to talk to the Shield technician who made that, like, amazing, undetectable bald cap goop.
0: Cyclops, meanwhile, is just Jake Peraltaing for all he is fucking worth. He gets cool 80s looking glasses and decides to give himself the mutate number 007.
1: Do we buy that? Do we buy that Cyclops would care enough about being cool to choose 007?
0: I buy that Cyclops would be annoyed enough with having to be plausible to just go with something silly. Okay,
1: the plan is that Cyclops, Iceman, and Beast, as an injured prisoner under a sheet, are going to sneak in. Also, in this scene, speaking of some of the visuals, I just want to point out that John Bogdanov's version of Banshee has possibly the most righteous mullet I have ever seen in an X-Men comic.
0: Miles, that's a high bar considering that you're talking about a universe with Shatterstar.
1: You know, I know that's true, but it's just so rich and full, and it's got those amazing sideburns. Like I would trade my hair in an instant for the mullet that Banshee is rocking in this scene.
0: We you put your money where your, where your mouth is. Would you actually do that?
1: My hair would never do that in real life. No one's would. No one. No one can have a Bogdanov mullet.
0: All right. Anyway, this is not exactly Plan B, but they know that the other team's been captured, but. Not all is lost because only Forge and Scott knew the location of the final secret bomb, and Forge is apparently managing to keep himself voluntarily unconscious so he can't be questioned.
1: I need to learn that trick. I've been having a lot of trouble sleeping lately.
0: Miles, unconsciousness and sleep are not actually interchangeable things.
1: Okay, well well, that may be true. But still, regardless, being able to do that at will? Like, the only person I can think of who can do that is the Puma Man from the astounding movie Puma Man.
0: So do you think that Forge can also phase through walls, fly awkwardly, and fall the fuck over?
1: I'm going to say with the correct cybernetics, yes. Okay. Would he dress like the Puma Man, though?
0: No. Obviously, he would wear tiny shorts and a monogrammed shirt.
1: Dude, there was that issue that you showed me of Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur with 80s Forge with his tiny shorts.
0: Tiny, tiny shorts. That's so awesome. Minimal. Oh, yes. Possibly hot pants.
1: Good old that guy. But anyway, they all head off to enact their plan, scattering in various directions each to do their role, just in time for the magistrates to find the warehouse where they were, which then explodes, killing like a shit ton of them.
0: Hey, X-Men.
1: This seems egregious even for the X-Men, like yes, I know they are literally at war, yes, I know that one of their teammates was killed and two more returned into mindless slaves, but they just murdered like 30 magistrates. That's
0: not true. Not all of them were magistrates. Some of them were just foot soldiers. Oh, well, I... No, that, does, that's... that doesn't make it better at all. Yeah. That does not improve it in the least, but it's good to be accurate.
1: Well, Cameron Hodge, watching this on one of his many monitors with the other leaders of Genosha, isn't too concerned either. He mentions, hey, you know, there are fires, but apparently a storm is building. That'll put out those fires. At which point the panel zooms in on the blank-faced Aurora Monroe in her mutate outfit in the background.
0: Surely she can have nothing to do with this as a clearly and thoroughly brainwashed mutate, right?
1: It is a pretty cool, oh shit moment. It's not going to pay off right away. But it's kind of awesome nonetheless. And when
0: it does pay off, it will pay off hard. Suddenly, Cannonball, Banshee, and Archangel attack
1: the leaders of Genosha.
0: And Archangel, for the first time since they've arrived, discovers who they're fighting against. He sees Hodge alive.
1: His childhood friend, who he then found an X-Factor with, who then betrayed him, was responsible for him losing his feathered wings and directly responsible for him becoming the horseman of death.
0: Murdered his girlfriend. Murdered
1: his girlfriend, tried to ruin his life in every way possible, And now, even though Archangel decapitated him, Hodge is a severed head on a robot body behind this event that has already caused some casualties among his friends.
0: You know what I wish they'd done? I wish there'd just been a pause where Angel had just stood there for a second and gone, you know, I had a dream just like this.
1: (laughs) Right? I do wish, actually, that this scene spent more time focusing on Archangel's reaction. Like, there's a little bit of, Hodge, no, it can't be. And that's kind of it. And... This should be such a big deal. This yeah. is Archangel who's finally started to embrace hope, embrace the future, you know? He uh, had that great conversation with Charlotte Jones' kid, and he's really ready to move on. And all of a sudden, he's getting pulled back to the worst part of his life. Yep. Ah, poor guy. So there's a fight, but Hodge's body, of course, it's immune to most of the mutant's powers, because that's always been one of Hodge's deals, is that he knows his enemies and he prepares for them. So he kicks the crap out of these three flying mutants, and that's three more in custody.
0: As the flyers are facing down Hodge and getting captured, Cyclops and Iceman are making their way into the facility disguised as mutates. They've got a stretcher with Beast entirely covered up on it, and they're claiming that he is another mutate who was injured in the explosion.
1: A passing magistrate asks what this mutate's number was, and Cyclops replies... Oh, it's
0: 666. To which, you know, the the magistrate responds...
1: 666? Hey, Joe, take a look. Somebody with a sense of humor numbered this one. 666 is...
0: And Beast finishes the sentence punching the magistrate out from under the sheet. You guessed it, Chump. The number of the Beast.
1: Womp womp. Okay, so the 007 thing with Cyclops, like, I'm not so sure about that. But Beast setting this up and choosing that number just so he could make that joke, 1,000% in character. Oh,
0: yeah. I feel like a lot of Beast's life is spent trying to figure out how to manipulate people into serving him specific straight lines.
1: I think you're absolutely right.
0: But I do like the fact that everyone else is doing these really serious infiltrations and then, like, these three... OG X-Men dudes are just like, let's do a wacky heist.
1: All of a sudden, they're in a freaking sitcom. Yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. It's kind of lovely. And I I wouldn't, I I guess not so much Iceman and Beast, but I would probably vote Cyclops among least likely to enact wacky heists.
1: Uh, Probably true, yeah. So
0: it's nice to see that they're working in some fun.
1: Well, it doesn't stay wacky for too long because suddenly walls descend, separating Cyclops from his companions. And there's Alex Summers. There's his brother, the brainwashed magistrate, waiting for him.
0: And. Alex, it seems, has been unfazed by being stabbed with the uh, focused totality of Betsy's psychic powers. He still has no memory of his prior life, and he is really, really pissed off.
1: He blasts the living crap out of Cyclops, burning his mutate uniform almost entirely off. Drink. And as they tussle, both immune to each other's powers, Cyclops puts Alex in a headlock, using his big brother training to do so.
0: Alex, remember! Back when we were little- Our parents' plane exploded in flames. Our mother pushed us from it with a single parachute between us. I held you just like this. In a headlock? Close enough. I didn't let you go then, and I won't let you go now.
1: I remember. It's true. Somebody's been messing with my mind. My life.
0: But before they can have any kind of tearful, pleasant reunion, Hodge appears, because important plot is happening, and Hodge is always there for that.
1: Skitter, skitter, skitter.
0: So... Alex, who absolutely recognizes Cyclops at this point, thinks fast and figures if Hodge catches them, they're both dead. So he buys some time by grabbing his own gun and knocking Cyclops unconscious and assuring Hodge that no, no, he absolutely doesn't believe Cyclops. He is loyal to Genosha. He's a good dude.
1: I see now that you hate this mutant who dares call you brother. And when he dies, I guarantee it will be by your hand.
0: Don't make promises you can't keep, buddy.
1: But yeah, that's our Empire Strikes Back ending here. I mean, you know, this is the end of the second third of the story, so it makes sense that we're at an Act 2 ending of everything having gone to hell. But things have, like, really gone to hell. I mean, okay, let's go down the list. Hodge still has huge amounts of political and actual power in Genosha.
0: Warlock's dead.
1: Storm and Wolfsbane are mutates.
0: Wolverine, Psylocke, Marvel Girl, Cable, Sunspot, Gambit, Forge, Archangel, Banshee, Cannonball, and Cyclops are all captured.
1: Iceman and Beast are trapped.
0: And only Jubilee, Richter, and Boom Boom are free.
1: And Genosha is planning to very soon execute all of the captured adult mutants as a show of power and of mercy for not executing the teenagers. <laughs> So yeah, that is how you end a second act. The stakes are so high, the heroes are so knocked back on their asses, like only three of them are free.
0: And while we are poised on the precipice of this particular cliffhanger, I think it's time to take some questions.
1: The Anatomy of Dust asks on Tumblr, Could you please explain the roles of pencils and artist and inker and colorist? Are they all different jobs to speed up production? Does the artist dictate the colors? Is it a collaborative relationship like writer and artist? I love Andrea Sorrentino from the 2015 X-Men annuals, and I will point out from most of the Old Man Logan ongoing series, and the ways panels have blocked green and red colors, but is that actually the responsibility of colorist Marcella Maiolo? Do you have a favorite artist and colorist team?
0: Okay, so those jobs are all basically what it says on the tin. Penciler usually does lighter pencils or digital pencils line art. Inker fills in, does the high contrast stuff, either literally inks or works digitally, but adds a lot of the tonal contrast. And frequently, depending on the pencils and how tight they are, ends up filling in a lot of the detail. Now, how much the art changes between pencils and inks can vary a lot depending on the team. And these are tasks that can theoretically all be done by either the same person or assembly line style by a team. And... How that ends up working and how they end up getting delegated out depends a lot on the book. It depends a lot on the book's schedule, as you suggested. And it depends a lot on whether, for example, you know, a lot of more prominent or more established line artists and colorists have specific combinations that they prefer to work in. And often line artists will request specific colorists. Now, for a long time, colorists basically got erased from credit like the line art. That's the pencils and the inks were treated as sort of the central thing and the colors were incidental. That's been changing in recent years, and it should be because colors define a lot of comics, and especially now that they're primarily digital, they're an incredibly detailed and nuanced art form and process. As far as who decides what, it really, really depends. Sometimes you have a lot of color information in a script, even, from the writer. Sometimes the line artist is really involved and engaged. Sometimes they're not. Sometimes the line artist and colorist work in very direct collaboration. Sometimes the colorist has a lot of freedom to do their own thing. And that very, very much depends on the book and depends on the creative team. Like, for example, I feel like if you have someone like, say, Jordi Beller on a book, you don't micromanage her. You are losing a lot if you do that because she is so tremendously, tremendously skilled in her own right. And I feel like any direction you direct her is not going to be as good as the way that she would ultimately choose to go left to her own devices. But, yeah, it depends very, very much on the project. In terms of specific teams, I mean, you mentioned Sorrentino and Mayolo, who are a terrific pair.
1: I would agree, yeah. Their work on Old Man Logan has just been freaking stellar.
0: I mentioned Jordi Belair, and Jordi Belair, and um, as colorist, with Gabriel Hernandez-Walta, I think, are another just really, really, really stellar team. Oh,
1: did they do the Magneto ongoing together a while back?
0: They did, yeah.
1: Oh, that was so good. Agreed.
0: Other times, I mean, I have, as an editor, put teams together because i thought a colorist's style and a line artist's style particularly complemented each other because they could, in combination create the specific look that we wanted for a book because I knew that they worked well together. That can actually be a really critical thing, especially on creator-owned books, because you want people who like and appreciate each other's work and who won't get frustrated, feel like someone else has ruined their stuff, pick it to death, etc. I think, I mean, I can say as an editor, one of my favorite combinations of line art and coloring teams are Steve Lieber and Rochelle Rosenberg, who are just stellar together, both creatively and just to work with. So I hope that pretty much answers your question. I mean, the answer to almost any creative process question on comics is ultimately going to be it depends a lot. But that's sort of a lot of sort of the standard of how it works. An anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, Assuming we are on the verge of an X movie reboot, I sincerely hope, what would be your ideal approach to this? Start with another building the team movie with a new lineup or more of an in-media rest start where they dive right into adapting a classic X storyline? Personally, I'd love it if more superhero movies skipped past the origin story. What would you like to see out of an X reboot, more story-wise than character-wise?
1: So, I certainly would have my own answer, but as it turns out, Elle Collins answered this question quite nicely in her Cast Party feature on Comics Alliance in one called Cast Party Who Should Star in an X-Men reboot. Comics Alliance by the way just closed and I am so so sad about that. It was my favorite comics criticism on the internet.
0: Yeah, we're recording this fairly far out, so as we're recording this, it just closed this past week. It'll have been a few weeks by the time it goes up. And it is wrenching. It's one of the sites where I started out writing. It was one of the first places where I did pro work. Like you said, it's consistently had some of the best, most salient, most thoughtful comics criticism. And it's just always been this phenomenal labor of love by an editorial and writing team who really really loved, cared about, and was really dedicated to providing really good in-depth analysis of its source material. I am so sad and so angry to see it gone. The comics criticism and comics media landscape is so, so much less without it.
1: Agreed. But their old stuff is still up, including Elle's cast party articles, including the X-Men ones. So her take, she suggested doing four X-Men movies, basically having each movie focus on a different era. So, she suggested skipping the origin. I mean, after all, A, we've seen it before, and B, it's not like the X-Men's origin story is complicated. They're mutants, there's a school, that's pretty much the long and short of it. So, she wanted to start off with an experienced Silver Age team. Xavier is dead, maybe for real, maybe not, and they're sort of on their own, both the original five and also their newest recruit, Havoc. They're welcoming another new team member, Polaris, aboard, and the conflict comes from realizing that her dad is Magneto, their greatest enemy. And I would love to see that, because... The Silver Age hasn't really been done much outside of the original comics and a couple of comic remakes. Throwing that world, even setting it into a modern setting, but throwing that balance of characters and the mutant world being that small into a film could be pretty awesome. Elle didn't stop there, because the second movie would have been a version of the Dark Phoenix Saga, the third would have been Inferno, and the fourth would be the return of Magneto at the beginning of the blue-slash-gold era. And that would be freaking amazing. So I say, yeah, start with the Silver Age, but not the very beginning. And don't worry about the origin, just show these characters being themselves, show their personalities bouncing off each other, show cool power, show interesting social reactions to the emergence of mutants.
0: And if you are a comics or pop culture media site, hire El Collins to write more about this.
1: Yes, yes, also that.
0: So we are an entirely listener-supported project, and some of those tiers of support come with acknowledgement on the show from a range of fictional entities and characters. Today, I am, a. Uh gingerly handing the mic over to the one, the only, and the apparently immortal, Cameron Hodge.
1: Ah, Madam President, why so shocked? Why, it's almost as if you're surprised that a severed head grafted to a mechanical monstrosity might be the slightest bit unhinged. Ah, but our goals are in common today. You receive two powerful new mutates to soothe your nation's flagging economy, and I shall be delighted to watch the scientific torment... Of my two greatest foes, Morgan Reed and Sam Davies, the nasty things? Gene engineer, begin the bonding process, and don't forget the screams.
0: Jay and Miles' Explain the X-Men is recorded in Portland, Oregon and produced by Kyle Yount, host of the Godzilla podcast Kaiju Cast.
1: New episodes come out every Sunday on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out
0: explainthexmen.com for extra content, visual companions to every episode, along with interviews, fan art, recaps, reviews, and more.
1: Our show is totally listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and stay ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, the Extinction Agenda concludes. And we pack up for our upcoming hiatus.